Lord, we do pray that you would mark us with happy obedience, glad surrender to you who loves us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me be the first to welcome you to the opening Sunday of sweater vest season. I know a number of you have been waiting with bated breath for the return of the sweater vest, and tis the season. So I thought I'd take care of that. Um, Also did want to just make one little remark about what Mark shared with us about our, our journey. It's called Journey of Faith Giving. That is the giving that goes to pay down our mortgages, our, our, our debt we owe on this building and other buildings on our property. And uh, there's an urgent need for your participation in that with us that does require designated gifts. They're kind of above and beyond sacrifices that our congregation has been making. And so if, if you want to participate in that on your check, you need to put in the memo line J-O-F, and that will help us with the meeting of our obligations on those matters. So I hope you, you will consider that because our need is, is great. This morning, though, what we're going to continue to do is continue almost near the end now of our series on the mission of God, connecting the dots of the Bible to figure out what is God doing. We've been trying to articulate his mission with this little statement. It's not inspired. You probably have written a better one by now, but it's helpful, so we're going to stay with it for a couple more weeks. The Bible tells the story of the loving and awesome words and deeds of God to redeem all of his creation, especially his wayward and sinful people from among all peoples for his name's sake. We said that that's really the story that the Bible tells. In the Bible, we've been comparing to a a drama acted out in six great acts. We said that the Old Testament was the first three acts, creation, uncreation, where sin entered in and messed everything up, and then the making ready for the king, the choosing of Israel. That's, how, that's really the first three acts is the story of the Old Testament. The New Testament is the latter three acts, the coming of the king and his kingdom, Jesus, the good news of the kingdom is spread by the church, and lastly, the return of the king in the end, which we're drawing very near to in more ways than one. Now we find ourselves this morning in our study in Act 5 of this unfolding drama. We are in the books of James and 1st and 2nd Peter where these authors are writing, urging the church to be actively and effectively participating in the spread of the good news that the King has come and His name is Jesus. And he has offered reconciliation to God to all who will believe in him and his great redemptive work. But it's not just where we find ourselves in our study. This is where we find ourselves in history. We are still in Act 5 of the unfolding drama. We live awaiting the return of our king and delighting to share the good news of the kingdom where we are and while we're here. And when I say that, I don't just mean... With your lips. We talk about spreading the good news. That's not just about what you say, although it's definitely important for us to be prepared to speak of the goodness of Christ to us and for others, to people around us. But it also involves living a life that makes that verbal proclamation believable, even desirable, where the quality of your work and your relationships at work 
open your co-workers to really hear and believe when the good news comes to them. Where your obvious care for your neighbors makes them give the Christian message a second chance. Where Christ-likeness in you makes Christ's message through you believable and desirable. So James and Peter are writing these books out of a concern for the health of the church. That we'd be living lives that contribute to the goal of Act 5, the spread of the good news. And in these three books, I'm going to highlight one of the central concerns of each of the books. And ask you to ask the question, which of these concerns am I most vulnerable to? As we go through them. James... I'm going to articulate his concern as hypocrisy. First Peter is a concern about suffering. And second Peter is a concern about how false teaching would affect the church. So again, I want you to listen and think about which of these messages is most pertinent to you today. And then I want you to commit with me to read that particular book this week, reflectively and meditatively, and uh, don't pick Second Peter because it's the shortest one, okay? They're all short. Listen for what God's saying to you this morning about your life and your world. And then follow up on that this week with the book that really focuses in on that. So, let's start with the book of James. Now, what you may or may not know, there's a number of guys named James in the New Testament, but the one that they think wrote the book of James was Jesus' brother, Talk about a fascinating insight into life as a Christ follower. Um, James is a younger brother, probably, of Jesus. And he writes from that perspective. It's interesting, too. He writes from the perspective of someone who at first was a skeptic. He just couldn't buy the idea that his older brother was the Messiah. Okay? Think about your older brother and you understand his dilemma. It just, it was out of his realm of thinking. But he ultimately became convinced as he watched Jesus. So that at this writing, he is a key leader in the New Testament church in Jerusalem. And he writes with tremendous authority and great wisdom. Some people have called the book of James the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's full of all kinds of wise insight about practical stuff. For instance, chapter 3 it's full of practical stuff about your words and your speech. James writes, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. And the book of James, if you haven't read it recently, is just full of practical wisdom about how to live a life that honors God and proclaims the gospel by the way you live your life. James' great concern for the church, as I mentioned, is his concern for us, and that is that we would fall prey to what I'm calling hypocrisy. That is the gap between faith and works, between what we say we believe and what we live. Okay. 
that gap bothers James to no end. And so he writes a lot about it. Um, in James chapter 1, um, I encourage you to turn to your Bible to James. You can follow along with me. I promise I'll, I'll stay mostly in these three books and they're one right after the other. So James chapter 1, he says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Imagine this, guys. You're shaving in the morning. It's early. You're shaving. And uh, you cut yourself. So you grab a little toilet paper and you stick it on there to stop the bleeding. And you look at yourself in the mirror and you think, you know, I really ought to get rid of that glob of bloody tissue before I go into the office. Okay? And then you finish up. You get distracted by your toothbrush. You realize you have to brush your teeth and you do the different things. And next thing you know, you're out the door. And guess what? Glob of bloody tissue still attached to your face. You look foolish. James says, when you look into the Word of God, whether it's by proclamation here or when you read it at home or you hear it on the radio, and you sense that God is saying something about the condition of your soul, and then you walk away and forget about it, you don't just look foolish. You're a fool. And that kind of faith is useless, he says. If you come here, Week after week and do nothing. James says, you're just being fooled, deceived, and your faith is actually worthless. It cannot deliver you. It isn't enough, he would say, just to come here every Sunday. Perfect attendance is not enough. Perfect attendance where you actually stay awake during the sermon is not enough. Perfect attendance, staying awake in the sermon and taking notes is not enough. Perfect attendance, staying awake, taking notes, and having a plan of action is not enough. James says, unless you follow through and do something, you've been deceived. So when was the last time you heard a sermon and actually did something in response? Not just learn something. Not just felt bad about something, but actually went out and did something. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. That that's not so much your fault as it is my fault. Don't go there, okay? James will not let you go there meritorious as that might be. He is not going to let you off that easy. He says, this is the object that we would come to the Word of God by whatever means, we would consider our lives, and then we would go do what God has asked us to do. Verse 25, uh, James, he paints us a different picture. He says, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. See, he says, you you look in the mirror, you see the glob of bloodstained tissue, and you take it off. You do something about it, and you're rewarded in the doing. 
So how are you following through on the word of God? Well, he gives us a little test. He shows us what our lives should look like if we're following through. In the next couple of verses, he gives us a three-question test. It goes like this. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So, so essentially he has three items here on this little exam he's giving us to check and see whether or not our faith is really affecting us. First thing is, are you controlling your tongue more than you used to? Are you blurting out regrettable things less than you were a year ago? See, he says, if, if that's not happening in your life, then the, there's a gap between faith and works that should be troubling to you. Second question, are you actively involved for caring for the poor? He, he cites kind of a category here, orphans and widows, the poorest of the poor. Are you actively involved in helping the poor? You could think about it this way. Which is a bigger budget item for you and your household? Caring for your pets or giving to the poor? Or, if you don't have pets, which is a bigger budget item in your house? Cable TV and internet or caring for the poor? Um, If there's a big gap there, then James says you need to rethink this whole thing. Third question, he asks, are you being negatively marked by the world, polluted by the world? Your modesty sliding a bit these days? Your honesty hedging? Your responsibility waning? Your contentment failing? Your purity eroding? Are you being stained, polluted, as he said, by the world? Well, that's his little three-question quiz for authentic, God-pleasing religion. How'd you do? He wants us to look at our, our works and narrow the gap between that and our faith. And these are three of the areas. But he has a number of areas. He talks in this book about temptation, perseverance, the tongue, the way we care for the poor, our prejudices, the way we plan, the way we pray, the way we party, the way we suffer, the way we treat neighbors, our pride, the way we deal with sickness. All of these things, he says, should be affected by our faith. And he says, um, in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? A couple verses later, he'll say, Faith without works or without deeds is dead. It's useless. So how's your gap between what you say you believe and what you live? James says, narrow that gap. The gap between what we say we believe and what we do will derail the church from spreading the good news of King Jesus to all peoples. And if as I'm reading this to you and talking about it, if you sense God poking you about this, then you should read James this week. Thoughtfully, prayerfully, carefully read James. It's short, it's just a handful of chapters. But it will push up against you and help you see what God would want you to do. 
That's the book of James. Now, the remaining two letters we want to look at this morning, two books, are both attributed to Peter. Peter was one of the twelve. He was pretty much Jesus' right-hand man. He was in that inner circle of disciples, and most notably, he was the one who on the night that Jesus was betrayed and then crucified, he denied Jesus three times. But then again, he was the one who the resurrected Christ appeared to on the beach there on the Sea of Galilee and said, I'm going to restore you three times, Peter. So he writes as a man who has fallen and failed terribly and who has been forgiven and restored marvelously. And he writes with great compassion and the heart of a shepherd. And it's out of that heart in 1 Peter that he expresses a great concern for how the church would weather suffering. And suffering is a theme that runs pretty much throughout 1 Peter. Um, one example is in chapter 4, starting in verse 12. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And then down in verse 19, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So Peter's concerned that the church should suffer in a Christ-honoring way. And there's several points just in this little passage that I'll draw out for us to think about with respect to our suffering. And the first is right there in that very first verse that I just read. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised when you suffer. Earlier in chapter 2, he says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. See, when we say we're a Christ follower, we follow a king who suffered greatly, and the expectation of the Bible is that we will suffer the same. Paul said it very candidly. He said, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's... That is our expectation. We really ought to be more surprised when we don't suffer. Because we follow one who suffered greatly. That doesn't always mean that we're persecuted overtly in a country like we live in. Though subtle persecution happens, happens often. But any suffering that happens to you as you obey and follow Christ... That's suffering for the name of Christ. When a mom stays up all night with a sick child as she follows Christ's example and mandates to love her children, she suffers that night for Christ's sake. When a man stays at work to help his co-worker because he wants to honor Christ in loving his neighbor and he stays late and it costs him to do that, he suffers for Christ's sake. We all who follow Christ daily and faithfully will suffer small sacrifices and great ones just out of obedience to following Christ. So don't be surprised when you suffer. And don't listen to the voices that say there's such a thing as a suffering-free Christianity out there. 
Jesus presented a very different promise to us. He says, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age. And then it catalogs some of those things. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them, persecutions. Persecutions. Jesus promises us, amongst other things, that we will experience suffering for his name's sake. So, don't be surprised when you suffer. Second thing I gleaned from Peter that I think is really helpful for us is expect it to be worth it. Whatever you suffer will be worth it. Again, back in 1 Peter 4, verse 13, he says, Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the Spirit of glory and God rests on you. Those verses intimate that there's a reward, that there is a, a day when if you rejoice in suffering now, you're going to be overjoyed one day when His glory is revealed. Um, chapter 2 puts it this way, it's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he's conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. There will come a day, if you suffer well for your faith, that you will receive the commendation of God himself on your life. And Peter fully expects that it's going to be well worth it. He starts his book on this thing. In chapter 1, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth and a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last day. In this great salvation we rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds, all kinds of trials. These have come purposefully, so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He says, look, it's going to be worth it. The suffering you have now refines your faith for a day of great commendation and reward by God. Paul would simply say, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's worth it. It's worth it. Don't bail out. It's worth it. I ran across a fascinating illustration of that in a book by Philip Yancey where he's writing about his relationship with Paul Brand who was a Christian um, missionary doctor who worked in India with uh, leprosy patients. And he describes a conversation he was having with one of those former leprosy patients, a fellow named Sadan. And so he said Sadan looked a lot like Gandhi, a little bald guy sitting cross-legged on the bed, talking kind of sing-song, high-pitched voice, telling him his story, story of tremendous rejection as a leper, 
ridiculed by classmates, literally kicked off public buses, denied jobs even though he had talent and training, not admitted to hospitals because of his leprosy. He says, when I got to Valor, I spent the night on the Brands, Dr. Brand's veranda because I had nowhere else to go. That was unheard of with a person with leprosy back then. He said, I can still remember when Dr. Brand took my infected, ulcerated feet in his hands. I had been to many doctors. A few had examined my hands and feet from a distance. But Dr. Brand and his wife were the first medical workers who dared to touch me. I had nearly forgotten what human touch felt like. Then he recounts all these operations, tendon replacement, cataract surgery, Um, The amputation of toes that he had to suffer as a result of his disease for him to be cured and healed, restored to some measure. Yancey writes, he says that uh, his past life was a catalog of human suffering. But he says, as we sipped our last cup of tea in his home just before leaving to catch a plane back to England, Sedan made this astonishing statement. Still, I must say that I am now happy that I had this disease. Happy? Yancey, yes? He said, yes, apart from leprosy, and I want you to listen closely to what he says. Apart from leprosy, I would have been a normal man with a normal family, chasing wealth and a higher position in society. I would never have known such wonderful people as Dr. Paul and Dr. Margaret, and I would never have known the God who lives in them. It will always be worth it to suffer to follow Christ. Always be worth it. So, Peter urges us one more thing. He says, suffer well. Suffer well. There's a kind of suffering that dishonors Christ. He says, if you suffer um, for being a murderer or a thief or a criminal or a meddler, that doesn't honor God. But when you suffer for good reason and for good motive and in a good way, in a good manner, God is honored. In verse 19 of that chapter, he says, So then those who suffer according to God's will, it's God's will that his people suffer, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. We should trust God and continue to be faithful. And one of the ways that looks like Peter tells us back in the third chapter, he says, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so you may inherit a blessing. We respond to wrong done to us differently. One of the most powerful examples in recent day that I'm aware of happened as a result of a Monday morning in October about two years ago. When a guy named Charles Carl Roberts IV, who was a 32-year-old milk truck driver in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, forced 10 Amish girls to lie on the floor of their school and then shot them before he took his own life. Only five of those girls survived. Roberts had said he was angry with God because his infant daughter had died minutes after her birth nine years earlier, and so he barricaded him in the school with these 10 little schoolgirls and shot them. But one Amish man observed to CBS News, he says, look, an Amish neighbor came that very night to Robert's widow, 
around 9 o'clock in the evening and offered forgiveness to the family the night of the shooting. Daniel Esch, one of the Amish men whose grandnephews were in that school during the attack, said, I hope of, of Robert's family, says, I hope they stay around here. They'll have lots of friends and a lot of support. The parents of the dead and injured girls forgave Roberts almost immediately and they raised money to help his wife and children through their ordeal. Amish women whose daughters were fatally shot by Roberts consoled the gunman's father. Half of the mourners at the gunman's funeral were the Amish. One observer said they are humble and meek and they showed no signs of revenge That's their way of living a Christian life. Marie Roberts, the gunman's widow, wrote an open letter to her Amish neighbors thanking them for their forgiveness, grace, and mercy. She wrote, Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And this we sincerely For this we sincerely thank you. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Suffer well. And the last thing Peter says that's important, he just reminds us that God is with us in this whole suffering thing. He says, be self-controlled, be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. God will not abandon you. He will be with you. He will restore you in your suffering. So First Peter, he talks about holiness and submission, and marriage, and church leadership, but especially he's concerned that we suffer well in the hope of the good and sufficient power of God. So those of you who suffer today, are you suffering well in faith? Those of you who are not, are you prepared to? Because Jesus says through Peter here that you should not be surprised when suffering comes to you. Well, if you're suffering, probably First Peter is a letter you ought to read this week and spend some time praying through it. But Peter wrote a second letter um, called Second Peter. And um, it was near the end of his life that he wrote this letter. And he writes in this second letter, to protect his people from false teaching. He's greatly concerned. It consumes him as he writes this letter. In the second chapter, he says, There were false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly induce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the truth, the way of truth, into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. This entire second letter is just warnings 
to the believers and judgments on the false teachers. It's Peter's great concern. These, these teachers were ignorant of the scriptures and they twisted them to fit their own ideas. He urges us to beware because these teachers are still around. Peter looked into the future a bit and he spoke of this coming. He says, first of all, you must understand in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. False teachers are going to be around. And I heard teaching on the radio just the other day. I was driving, um, I was lost on my way to the men's retreat. Um, Listening to the radio and I heard remarkable exposure of false teaching that's prevalent in in a movement um, in Christianity called the third wave that's sparking a lot of these kind of spectacular revivals in our country. Uh, This comes from the teaching of uh, Benny Hinn. He says, are you a child of God? Then you are divine. Then you're not human. Though we are not Almighty God Himself, nevertheless, we are now divine. He goes on to say, I am not part of Him, I am Him, speaking of Christ. The Word has become flesh in me. He says, Are you ready for some real revelation knowledge? You are God. Now, if that does not raise a red flag for you, then you should read 2 Peter this week because that's heretical teaching. And it's on the radio, and it's on TV, and it's in our community. You can drive across Capitol, and you can swing by the Mormon church who has a similar doctrine about our future as, as God's. There's a new church founded in town here, a church plant that denies, specifically and intentionally denies the doctrine of the Trinity you've been so carefully taught in our life change classes. I don't know these men's motives, but Peter understands these false teachers to be extremely dangerous. He says the very reputation is Christ is at stake. Back in that second chapter, he says many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. He says especially it's dangerous for those who are new believers says, these teachers mouth empty boastful words and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. New believers are especially susceptible. And because of these dangers, Peter exhorts us as he closes out his letter. He says, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. That's how he starts his book and closes it. Look, it opens this way. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And he closes it by saying, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peppered all throughout the book is this urging that we would know Jesus by means of the Bible, by his word. He says, we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you'll do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. Pay attention to the word, he says. Um, He says in chapter 3, Dear friends, this is my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. 
We're supposed to be reading the Bible in a way that shapes our thinking, affects the way we see the world around us. Think about our lives. He says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. He urges us to know the promises of God. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. He says, in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Peter is greatly concerned about our vulnerability to false teaching, and he believed that the cultivation of an intimate knowledge of Jesus, his word and his promises, was essential. He also urges us to grow in the grace of Jesus Christ that comes to us through the good news of his death and resurrection on our behalf. So, you vulnerable to false teaching? I mean, how well do you know the Bible? When, when the Jehovah Witnesses are knocking on your door, do you know why that's false teaching? The Mormons come by on their bikes to pay you a visit and have a conversation. Do you know? When you watch TV, can you tell? If you're vulnerable, you should read prayerfully and carefully this little book called Second Peter this week and bear in mind what James has said. What does God want you to do in response to it? We want to close our time and draw near to the Lord's table together. James gives us a great exhortation as we get ready for the table. He says, but God gives us more grace. More grace. That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Come humbly to God, repentant of the sins that he's pointed out to you. It says, if you'll draw near to him, he will come near to you. God gives us more grace. The book of Hebrews we looked at a couple weeks ago said, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We come to the Lord's table for a lot of reasons. We come out of obedience. We come to remember. We come to worship. We also come to meet Christ at that throne of grace, to commune with Him and to find the grace from Him that we need. So if you'll bow with me, let's prepare to come to the Lord's table.